Today on Thoroughly Equipped, we are going to look at the third foundational principle every white bridge builder needs to understand from the Be the Bridge 101 guide, and that is overcoming white fragility. My goal for this episode is to help you put your white fragility to good use. So let's dive in. And welcome, Robin D'Angelo. I talked about white fragility, which is my concept of uh, how our socialization sets white people up to respond really poorly to challenges to our racial positions, worldviews, or advantages. You started out with this level of denial, defensive, what we kind of corn today is like fragility, you know? This is what I'd love, so yeah, it's a case viewers are always sure, of course, quoting Dr. Um, Robin D'Angelo, right? She's the one who pointed yeah. to fragility. I, I don't think that fragility shows up until we actually start interacting with this stuff. <laughs> I would say at this point, it's just still ignorance. It's still just chosen denial. Um, um, it's just obliviousness, right? And oftentimes chosen, but we're, we're, we're not even being pushed enough to have to can be considerate of fragility. So, uh, mm -hmm. but that might be, maybe she would, you know, so I'm not trying to answer that for her. I'd be curious her take on that. We'll, have, be, we'll have to read her new book yeah. when it comes out this summer. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> where, I, where I see white fragility being particularly important is when white people actually, when a light bulb goes on, and I think this is another common mistake for us who are white, when a light bulb goes on, this stuff is serious. But when we start to wrestle with these things, when we start to see how deep it goes, when we start to discover our own complicity with it, which I think is really hard, when we just start to discover that despite our best attempts to not be racist, we've internalized some of the white supremacy kinds of ideologies, um, when we realize that we still have implicit biases towards people that we wish weren't there but are there, all of those things fatigue us, and disorient us, um, they disrupt kind of our worldview. And that's where I see white fragility being very, very serious. And and those challenges can come in direct feedback, either from people of color or from other white people, but they can also come in challenges to very cherished ideologies, right? A challenge to individualism, uh, a, cha you know, a challenge to meritocracy, a challenge to white centrality, right? And I've been thinking about that one a lot lately because it often manifests in um, organizations trying to sponsor uh, ongoing work because they recognize that it's ongoing, that you're never finished. Don't think that you're going to become an expert. Mm -hmm. uh, we are all learners in this. We never arrive. This is not a sprint. It's a marathon. Mm -hmm. um, this is not a movement. This is a lifestyle here. And so we are, um, this is a part of your life. It's like, you know, I think Margot, you said this, like I'm spending, you know, the rest the rest of my life trying to unlearn the first 40 years of my life and mm -hmm. so that's a lot like we are trying to deconstruct and reconstruct in a healthy way i mean um theologically all these things i mean how we've been cued how we've been informed mm -hmm. um you know um you know as as children um you know um theologically all of those things that we are now um you know putting a microscope on those, a magnifying glass, excuse me, and putting ourselves on a microscope and just putting a magnifying glass on all these things. And so this takes time. This is one step at a time, but you continue to engage. I mean, if guilt motivates you, I'm okay with it. Okay. Uh, and as a good Catholic, it does motivate me. If guilt paralyzes you, then uh-uh, you can't indulge in it. 
a lot of her dynamics actually are coming from Catholicism. There's the priestly caste, and then there's the Vulgate, right? So there's the people who know things, and then and then there's the congregation, and then there's this there's these articles of confession, and so she's putting on this confessorial kind of attitude, and also again her view of racism because she she divests it from the individual, she puts it on this societal level so that it's always saturating everything. Again, it's original sin. Following her Catholic upbringing, how do you get rid of the original sin? Is you're not necessarily forgiven so much as you do penance and you do penance and you do penance and you do penance. So this penance in the, in the first instance is humility. What I invite white people to do is to reach for humility and be willing to just grapple. Uh, and that right there is an interruption <laughs> to what it means to be white, is to have humility in the face of racism in the ways that we've been set up uh, to collude with it. What does growth look like to you in the area of racial healing, um, equity, and reconciliation? What does I think for me, one of the signs of growth is, especially for white members, is increased humility. Mm. Um, I mean, we talk a lot about centering in Be the Bridge. And I think when a white participant, which some people have this naturally, but not everyone does culturally, we do a real good job as white people of centering ourselves. But when we learn to just listen without adding in our own words and our own experiences and just listen and believe the person who is speaking to us, um, I think is a huge, huge marker of growth. 24-7, the forces around us push and seduce and compel us to, to participate. And the only way to not collude is to actively, intentionally, and strategically seek to resist those forces. And as soon as we're complacent, you know, we get sucked back in. And the kind of resentment uh, that a lot of white folks feel about having to do this, <laughs> uh, for me, is also a challenge to white centrality, white entitlement, white comfort. And, and so all of the ways we tend to respond when those things get challenged, and even though I'm using the term fragility, I don't want to suggest that it's a form of weakness because it really does function to, to bully the challenge off and get us back into the norm, our equilibrium, and kind of in, back into the center and into kind of our comfort zones. But I think the most hostile, toxic environment for people of color every day is unexamined whiteness. Welcome to Thoroughly Equipped, a podcast for women where we compare the popular women's ministry teachings, books, conferences, Bible studies, etc. to scripture. Our focus is 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I'm your host, Malbatos. May this episode bless you and bring glory to God. Hey ladies, welcome back to another episode of Thoroughly Equipped. If you are new, welcome. We are going over the Be the Bridge Guide that is required reading for all white people who decide to enter either the Be the Bridge Facebook group or the small group discussion group. Um, this is only one of the guides required with several other re-education readings required for a new bridge builder before they can even post on the Facebook group. There's a lot to deal with here, so we're just going to dive right in. So in the last episode, we looked over the first two steps given to us in this um, guidebook. 
and those were white identity and white privileges. So the guide wanted you to, as a white person, root your identity in um, our historical past, or American historical past. Um, they encouraged to take on a good white identity. And what they mean by that is to identify the white supremacy foundation of our heritage and divest ourselves of it and start becoming white people who take on more of the critical race theory worldview um, and become anti-racist. So that was really kind of their intention. It's not said explicitly, but that's really what they're going for. Now, under white privileges, which is step number two, informing our white identity, we come to learn of our white privileges, and part of being anti-racist is to, of course, relieve ourselves of those privileges and give those privileges to people of color. Okay, so for the third step from the Be the Bridge 101 foundational principles every white bridge builder needs to understand guide is to overcome white fragility. We are encouraged to identify our white fragility as laid out for us by Robin D'Angelo, who defines it this way. Quote, white fragility is a state in which even a minimum amount of racial stress becomes intolerable, triggering a range of defensive moves. These moves include the outward display of emotions such as anger, fear, guilt, and behaviors such as argumentation, silence, and leaving the stress-inducing situation. That's Be the Bridge 101, page 14. So, understand this, my white sister in Christ. White fragility is the outward display of defensive moves. These moves range from argumentation to silence, to even leaving the conversation. Basically, any reaction on the part of you and I as a white person is exercising our white fragility, and this is really going to be central to how we communicate and is going to have an impact on how discourse transpires in a Be the Bridge group. This is where the heart of this guide is going to come into practice, really. You'll find tips in the back of this guide directing white people on how to converse with people of color so that we keep our white fragility in check. We'll look at this in a bit. But what would trigger defensiveness when talking about race? I mean, most of us have been brought up to understand racism is a sin, the sin of ethnic partiality, enmity, and pride. Most of us are raised to hold a form of colorblindness when it comes to judging people and would therefore claim not to be racist. We may even avoid race as a discussion as an overall precaution to avoid even being seen as a possible racist or to avoid possibly offending a person of color. If we are avidly avoiding offending a person, of course we would get a bit defensive being accused of offending. And I believe this is where division starts. For decades, Americans have been working to rid itself of racist ideas, rightly so, and have been successful at it, slowly but surely. But people of certain worldviews actually want division because it benefits them in some way. And the easiest way of creating division comes through ideas, beliefs, and deception. And what is the easiest form of dece deception? The changing of words. That is why we are seeing this division. 
Paul appeals to the Roman church to avoid people who cause divisions in Romans 16, verses 17 18. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ on their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. So the division is happening because words one person uses ends up having a different definition than another person may be using. And division within the church happens because of false teachers who teach doctrines contrary to scripture. According to Be the Bridge, white people's power, privileges, and fragility are what cause division among the church. They would probably argue the false teaching that all white people inherently believe that whiteness is rightness or white supremacy, that that's the false teaching they're trying to eradicate, not realizing that the worldview they have adopted is built on worldly, anti-Christian, culturally Marxist teachings. And by merely adopting the presupposition that all white people are racist and will do whatever we can to defend our whiteness, be the bridge, disciples, and other anti-racists come to the table, even before the discussion takes place, with prejudgments, different definitions of oppression, justice, and racism, and teachings regarding these, you bring these to the church and you cause division. To take on man's definition of oppression, justice, righteousness, enmity, partiality, and equality is to create an obstacle that is contrary to doctrine taught to us by the apostles. Why? Because it's man's observations, assumptions, and word against God's word. So here is where discernment comes in. We have to define our terms and understand where these terms being used can actually be causing or teaching a different doctrine or different ideas than what we are taught in scripture. So that's how we combat this. Like, for example, remember, racism is no longer the sin of pride and partiality, but is now the system of advantages that produce an unequal distribution of resources, privileges, and power, once perpetuated by cultural messages. Or another way to, of stating this is cultural beliefs. The cultural message or belief among white people is what Be the Bridge calls a white consciousness, the white perspective, or in critical race theory terms, whiteness. When our whiteness is challenged, it is then that we develop white fragility. Quote, our white perspective has never been challenged. Instead, every aspect of our culture has reinforced our worldview. So when presented with an idea or a personal experience from someone that contradicts the narrative we have developed about ourselves and our world, we often feel unbalanced or even threatened. Even the idea that whiteness is a culture is challenging to white people. The reality is, however, we do view the world through a cultural lens just as all people do. While understanding one's culture is a complex study, there are some major areas of white culture that are challenged when race and inequality are discussed. Things white people often take for granted and assume are the norm are actual ideas into which we were socialized. Such ideas that we are to challenge here, um, the idea of 
the U.S. as a meritocracy. What you have is based on how hard you worked and nothing else. Of individualism versus group identity. Each individual is their own person and should not be lumped in with others, and we should avoid good, bad, or neutral generalizations. Binary thinking. People or ideas are either good or bad, right or wrong. All of these ideas shape how we interact with the concept of race. When the way we view the world is challenged, our worldview is shaken and we feel personally attacked. This response is white fragility at work. Recognizing and fighting our fragility is an essential first step in walking towards God's vision in Revelation 7, end quote, page 15. Yes, by all means, let's challenge these. But what do I challenge them with? A BIPOC view on them? an anti-racist view of these philosophies. I'm willing to hear what anyone has to say about them, but what ultimately will be my authority is scripture, and any Christian's authority or self-proclaimed Christian should say that scripture is their authority as well. A Christian should not want to challenge their culture's ideas just because someone says they are unjust, but we should want to compare them to scripture. As a follower of Christ, it is his word that Christians are to abide in. It is his word that sanctifies us. So we should not be concerned with how certain American cultural ideas affect how we interact with race. I am, however, concerned with how we, as Christians, sinners as we are, interact with other sinners and what ideals and worldviews line up with God's revealed truth. Race, for me, is just not in the equation. And by no means am I saying that Western culture is better than another culture. Western culture does have its problems. The ever-growing ideas of pragmatism and postmodern thought are some of the problems I see coming out of our culture today, but there are certain beliefs within Western thought that actually would find their roots from the Judeo-Christian worldview, and the philosophy ideas that Be the Bridge mentions specifically here that we should challenge are just some of them. Meritocracy, for example. This is a good ideal to strive for, though what Be the Bridge claims meritocracy is is not really what meritocracy is. Meritocracy as a political ideology is the notion of a political system in which economic goods or powers are vested in individual people based on ability and talent rather than wealth or social class, and I would even say ideology. Advancement in such a system is based on performance as measured through examination or demonstrated achievement. Now, our whole democratic republic was built on voting for representatives who showed themselves approved for the task. Where that system is at now, well, that's a you know, separate issue to tackle. But meritocracy as a philosophy applied to a governmental system, along with checks and balances from legislation and law, has given the Western people freedom and the most affluent, comfortable lifestyles for the vast majority of its citizens. I recently watched a YouTube documentary about a Russian scientist named Trofim Lysenko, who was hired as the head of Soviet agriculture to help with production of food through Stalin's five-year plan to industrialize Russia and collectivize the farms. He was chosen for this role not based on talent, study, or ability, but because he adhered to the Russian communist ideology and narrative of the time. 
instead of granting power over the development of food based on meritocracy, where regardless of beliefs, someone studied and understood plant biology and food production, and was given the ability to exercise their hard work in this area, in the production of food, in collectivizing the farms, Stalin put ideologues in charge of them. Lysenko was one of them. He applied the terrible idea of genetic Lamarckianism, which taught that physical changes in organisms during their lifetime can be transmitted to their offspring through education. An example of this would be to place seeds in freezing water so they would evolve physical traits that would weather the freezing temperatures. This evolutionary ideology applied to food production in the Soviet Union caused the famine in 1932, resulting in the mass deaths of starvation. And another thing I thought about is that there were centuries where the European world was not built on meritocracy. I mean, think of feudalism, where your resources, power, and privilege were inherited. Regardless of talent, interest, ability, or hard work, someone would be born as a noble in charge of vast communities. If you happened to be born a peasant, which most people were, you were destined for life to be a peasant. Now, do we really want to go into these type of realms? Do we want to cast off meritocracy? Society should be built on people who have demonstrated that they have studied and worked hard in their God-given talents and abilities. There's a difference between claiming that the U.S. is a meritocracy versus claiming the U.S. should be a meritocracy. In our sinful world, it may not always work out that way, but it certainly has helped Western societies to be some of the freest societies in all the world. But it's not just governmental systems that adopt meritocracy as a way to structure community. Businesses and educational institutions are hired based off of experience and demonstrated achievement. Companies should want to hire based off of education, experience, ability, and talent Though we see a drastic change in this, with DEI philosophies being pushed in companies, and the same goes for churches, God calls pastors and elders in the leadership to study to show themselves approved. 2 Timothy 2.15 Again, DEI hiring practices come into the church, reject altogether the meritocratic idea, and adopting practices that satisfy anti-racist outcome of diversity of power in hopes of bringing in diversity of people. This is your multicultural church growth movement at its finest, replacing substance for outcome. At an individual level, a person who works hard in the gifts and talents that God has given should be measured through examination and demonstrated achievement. Typically, people think of meritocracy as a worldly way of merit, that someone deserves what they have because of their talent and ability. The worldly and progressive view on this wants to say that meritocracy places higher value on human life on those who have more talent and ability. A Christian view is different. It understands that all human value is based on the image of God, not on talent and ability. No one merits God's favor, nor does God save, based on that person's talent and ability. But God is clear that there is an outcome to putting talent and ability given by God to use and hard work. Those who work eat. Those who do not, we are told to not let him eat. According to God within the church community, the outcome of working is the ability to eat. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother 
who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have that right, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Second Thessalonians 3, 6-12 The talent and ability God gave to Paul in tent building provided for his physical needs, and the talent and ability God gave to Paul in preaching the gospel resulted in the salvation of groups of Gentiles and the building of churches in the areas that he preached. Scripture also talks about heavenly rewards to those who work hard in our service to Christ. The rewards in heaven are not materialistic, like Word of Faith teachers like to claim, but it is still rewards merited to us based on faith granted to us by God, faith that we did not receive based on merit, nor by our will or our work, but by God's great grace. We see Jesus described a form of meritocracy in his parable of the talents, GotQuestions.org talks about the universal application of this parable to all of mankind in this way. Quote, From the time of the creation of mankind, each individual has been entrusted with resources of time and material wealth. Everything we have comes from God and belongs to Him. We are responsible for using those resources so that they increase in value. As Christians, we have additionally the most valuable resource of all, the Word of God. If we believe and understand him and apply his word as good stewards, we are a blessing to others and the value of what we do multiplies. We are accountable to the Lord for the use of his resources. That's from gotquestions.org, the parable of the talents. Link is in the description. God is a good God who gives reward to hard work and putting to good use the talents and abilities we are given. Where Christians can go wrong is forgetting that salvation is not a reward, it's a gift. And for Be the Bridge and other progressive Christians, there is a tendency to confuse these and claim that since salvation is not merited based on talent or ability, neither should privilege, power, or resources. Another thing we are told to challenge in the Be the Bridge 101 guide is individualism. Christian culture holds to individualism because ultimately each will be held accountable based on their individual rebellion against God. Deuteronomy 24.16 says, Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. There's also a justice issue here, as punishment is not given to groups of people because of one's individual sin. Revenge may want groups and families to be punished for someone's sin, but God's justice is dished out to the one who committed the sin, not the family or the tribe or the nation. Societies that are collectivist, such as North Korea, will take on a collectivist view of punishment like this. One person's act of treason, say for example, possession of a Bible, results in the punishment, or as they would call it, re-education, of the whole family. This is true oppression. 
Collectivism always lumps people into groups and pins one against the other in some way, shape, or form. It by nature has to, because the collective is identified by certain traits, whether that is physical or ideological. The third idea, Be the Bridge, claims is associated with whiteness that should be challenged as binary thinking. Christians, directed by God's word, understands that when it comes to philosophies and ideas, there are good and bad ones. God is good. His word is good. His law is good. Christ's life and work were good, perfect, and sufficient. There is no one good but God, and no word good but God's word. There is a reason why the statement, ideas have consequences, is a factual statement and is binary in nature. Even beliefs have good or bad consequences. Either you believe and trust in Christ and receive mercy from God, or you do not believe and receive wrath as a just payment for your sins. Does Be The Bridge want to really promote that this binary thinking or this belief doesn't even exist in scripture, or do they just outright ignore it? As Be The Bridge encourages white people to challenge our Western cultural ideas, they explain that in doing so, our our white fragility will rear its ugly head. So how does a white person accomplish overcoming white fragility? What tips does Be The Bridge have for white people to withhold their white fragility and be re-educated on race in America? In the last pages of the guide, Be The Bridge provides 16 bridge-building tips for white people. I do not have time to go through all of them, but let's go through a few. And number four is don't white-splain. So let's dive into this one a little bit. It says, do not explain racism to a person of color. Do not explain how the microaggression they just experienced was actually just someone being nice. Do not explain how a particular injustice is more about class than race. It's an easy trap to fall into, but you can avoid it by maintaining a posture of active listening. Again, they would say that white splaining would be an exercising of your white fertility, and there is basically an encouragement of white people to just remain entirely silent. We are to learn and accept about microaggressions based on a subjective experience and to take it as truth. Five, don't make the conversation about you. Oh, of course not. (laughs) You know, they basically say in this one, I'm not going to read it, but white people have had to say in our Western culture for centuries. So now it's time for white people to basically just shut up. Number six, don't equate impact with intent. Yes, we all know your heart was in the right place and you meant well, but your words or behavior had a negative impact on those around you. And that is what matters. Despite the best of intentions, as you navigate conversations of race, you will make mistakes and missteps and hurt someone. Humbly apologize and do better next time, rather than dig in your heels and try to justify yourself. So if I explain to a black person that my heart or my intention in asking those questions that they deemed were microaggressions, um, if I try to justify myself in that regards... I am basically told to just shut up and I am wrong because what really matters is the impact, the way that person subjectively took it. So here, undermining in the very, very foundation of a discussion on building bridges, on building unity, we are told that truth doesn't matter. 
This is a postmodern subjective view. And not just a postmodern subjective view, but a people of color postmodern subjective view. That is how you find truth. That is where we're going to learn how to really racially reconcile how to, according to Be the Bridge and Latasha Morrison standards, have a righteousness that's built on race. 11. Do not chastise people of color or dismiss their message because they express their grief, fear, or anger in ways you deem inappropriate. Understand that historically we white people have silenced voices of dissent and lament with our cultural idol of niceness. Provide space for people of color to wail, cuss, or even yell at you. Jesus didn't hold back when he saw hypocrisy and oppression. People of color shouldn't have to either. <laughs> I'm sorry why I am laughing because this, if you have done any research on uh, to critical race theory and how it's kind of um, entered into the institution, there is a very popular story that went around back in 2017 of a school called Evergreen College. Um, uh, Weinstein, Brett Weinstein was a teacher there who um, had to deal with critical race theory and just this rebellion of, of students who overtook and overran the school in, at in about 2017, um, they pretty much kicked him out. And what you see is the people of color, or not just people of color, many, many white people as well, um, being allowed to supposedly express their grief, fear, and anger in very inappropriate ways. Did you have a chance to stay on high school? She would have seen them, they were talking about white allies, and targeting white allies, but understanding when you do something that's racist, owning up to it, taking responsibility, and adapting your behavior. Yeah, 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 literally cursing at their um, teachers, at the people in charge, at the, the very president of the school, cursing and calling him names. Unbelievable. And it was given, they were given license to continue to do this because always it was under the guise of they're oppressed give them the ability to speak and and release their frustration. And what it ended up doing is destroying that college. So I laugh at this because it's it is such a license to give people the ability to sin. And it's horrible. You're excusing bad behavior. The more I read this, I get frustrated. As I was editing this portion of the podcast, I realized something I failed to mention here. Notice that they equate the people of color's inappropriate behavior to Jesus's actions, saying that we white people need to remember that Jesus too reacted in ways that seemed inappropriate 
in that culture in response to the injustice and oppression of that time. Straight up, this is blasphemous and a twisting of Jesus' action to support their sinful behavior. First, Jesus' reaction was never inappropriate. He was sinless and reacted always in line with the Father's instruction. Therefore, they were the exact reaction needed for what was being done or said at the time. Two, the problems that Jesus was responding to were not in line with what Be the Bridge and other anti-racist activists are actually fighting against. Jesus always responded and fought against the misuse of the means of grace that God had given to bless his people. We see Jesus turning over the tables in the temple because they turned what was a place to receive grace, forgiveness. It was a house of prayer from God into a den of thieves. When Jesus called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs or sons of the devil, it was because they had taken God's good word and means of grace to God's people and twisted it for their own means and added laws or restrictions to bind God's people. There is so much more to get into here. I could do a whole episode on this topic, really relating how Be the Bridge itself uh, produces Pharisees and um, working for racial righteousness, a righteousness apart from Christ. Uh, I could do, it could be a whole nother hour, <laughs> but um, basically Be the Bridge draws people away from the means of of grace that God has given in Christ by deceiving its members to believe that their fight against the so-called white supremacy in Western culture is equal to Jesus's fight against the abuse of God's grace. Nope, that's not what's going on in scripture. One is fighting for their own comfort, power, and glory with be the bridge and anti-racist action. And while Christ was always fighting to uphold God's word and his glory. Back to the tips for white people. 13. Don't underestimate the impact of your words. You have the power to inflict real lasting damage in these conversations. Be careful. Melanin is not a protective shield. When did we ever think that? Decide if you want to be a bomb or a battering ram. Right, this this one um, perpetuates the idea that your words abuse people, that hatred, hateful words cause such, you know, like they said, lasting damage to, pe to people of color. And yet, if a person of color seems to express their grief or anger in ways that are inappropriate, that's not abuse. <laughs> the, um, the hypocrisy is very interesting. But the psychological idea that your words uh, create abuse and there needs to be safe spaces, but of course not for white people, they don't get safe spaces. Um, people of color are allowed to wail, cuss, and yell at us. Um, those aren't abusive, that's just them releasing their anger. 14. Don't forget racism is our problem. Our people created 
created and sustained it, and now it's our job to dismantle it. Only by the grace and mercy of God are people of color willing to walk this road with us towards racial healing and reconciliation. Honor that reality and how you treat those with whom you want to build bridges. Racism is not just our problem. True racism, the idea of hating somebody or being at enmity with somebody because of the color of their skin or their ethnicity, that is not just our problem. The 15, don't get defensive when you're called out for any of the above. Of course, when a person of color tells you that your words, tone, or behavior are racist, oppressive, triggering, you stop. Don't try to explain yourself. See number six. Don't become passive-aggressive or sarcastic. Don't leave in a huff. It may be helpful, however, to inconspicuously step outside, go to the restroom, take a deep breath. Remain cognizant of the dynamics of white fragility and take note of how it usually shows up in you. Basically, whenever you get defensive. When you get defensive or leave the conversation, you reinforce to people of color that white people are not a safe people with which to have this conversation. <laughs> um, so any type of reaction that a white person has relays to people of color that they are not safe. Well, how can there ever be unity? If no matter what I do, you, you as a, uh, you, Latasha Morrison and all the other bridge builders train not only their white people to, to check their white fragility, but that anything that they do is a result of white fragility. You therefore train the people of color within those discussion groups that, well, their silence is because they are feeling fragile. And, you know, you are now entering into an unsafe space or you're in an unsafe space because that person is silent. No matter what their reaction is, the white person's reaction is, it uh, displays that that white person has fragility and holds to white supremacy and see that's the white supremacy um, that they have been inculcated in. They need to release that. White people cannot win in these Be the Bridge discussions. They have no say. They are not allowed to correct anybody based on truth. What happens when a white person wants to say, here, this is the word of God? Can't even say that. That's their white fragility. So in my opinion, white fragility is an accusation flung at white people to get them to shut up. It first presupposes that any sort of reaction on the part of a white person is because deep down they are prideful, want to be right, and are by nature racist because they were born white in a white supremacist culture. This is why you'll continually hear Be the Bridge leaders and teachers instruct their white bridge builders to always be growing in humility. And the evidence of one growing in humility is to be quiet, just listen, and submit to people of color's experience and knowledge. The presupposition that white people have more pride than any other ethnicity, that they struggle to be humble, and really just wish to hold to power and privilege that they will defend it at any way possible, is truly a racist belief. It imposes a spiritual and moral inferiority to someone simply because of the color of their skin. So I recently found uh, this YouTube channel called Self Liar with the host Paul Maxwell, who I think talks about uh, psychological matters, trauma, and um, Christianity. I don't know much about the channel 
beyond that and haven't watched a whole bunch of him. But in my research for studying what fra- what what white fragility is and all that, I came across his one episode on white fragility and the evil behind it. It's completely worth watching, in my opinion, and I will put it in the show notes. Um, the link there for you to check it out yourself. But here's some clips that I made from that episode that I think present the spiritual and moral inferiority presuppositions that are behind white fragility. He does a great job laying them out. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who is black about trauma, but the conversation turned political at one point and I expressed some of my misgivings about intersectionality politics from the perspective of somebody who uh, did his doctoral dissertation on trauma. He disagreed with me and he proposed that the reason that I took issue with identity politics and with intersectionality was because it threatened my white privilege. This was a suggestion he made to me about me, that the reason I disagreed with him was because I was subconsciously threatened and therefore thereby deployed a defense mechanism, which was my counter argument to him. Okay. And I was compelled to disagree with him because of a psychological defense mechanism, which produced denial of the intersectionality perspective. Now he was the first to introduce me to this psychological phenomenon which is unique to whites, I'm learning, uh, which the political left calls white fragility. So he said, the reason you're disagreeing with me right now or the reason that you don't see things my way is because of your white fragility. White fragility is a psychological mechanism predicated on a certain view about the status of white intellect, the psychiatry of the white mind, and the moral constitution of each white person. D'Angelo writes that white people are so dazzled by their whiteness that their own regular, normative, explicit, and implicit reasons for violence against racial minorities are actually camouflaged to them, so they almost can't even conceive of themselves as racist. But not only are these racist practices camouflaged to whites, but when these practices are brought under the stage light through conversation or reading or cultural messaging, and when they are diagnosed or highlighted and challenged by minority culture, such that white culture's enchantment with its own whiteness is threatened, that they resort to denial tactics, which refortify their enchantment with whiteness and center their own whiteness and recenter their own whiteness. D'Angelo reduces all forms of disagreement with her to epistemological and moral deficiency, okay, to ignorance and selfishness. She argues that white people are so socialized by their whiteness that they cannot, without proper racial education and re-education, accurately perceive the extent to which their racist prejudice against minorities is baked into their own worldview, okay? White people are, in this presentation, philosophically and specularly handicapped by their own race about their own race. And two, she's able to make individual psychiatric diagnoses of individual whites by using their race as a proxy for diagnosis. Three, she is licensing anyone who drinks the Kool-Aid of this white privilege concept to extend that diagnosis to individuals with whom uh, they converse who actually happen to disagree with them about this issue of white fragility or race or white privilege or so on and so forth. D'Angelo proposes a third deficiency of whiteness that builds on the first two, a moral deficiency, okay? And D'Angelo argues that whites who disagree with her about racial theory are actually culpable 
for the existence and effects of explicit and implicit racism in American culture. The white person is intellectually and psychologically and psychiatrically and ethically inferior and must begin every conversation about the topic by repenting of their whiteness. First, the reason white fragility is an evil concept is that it is racist. It makes a race-specific generalization about the intellect, psychiatry, and morality of an entire ethnic group. And those who operationalize the concept of white fragility implicitly affirm the legitimacy of stereotyping white individuals as representative of an inferior ethnic class and consequently of denying them a voice in the conversation. Second, those who operationalize the term white fragility signify a staunch unwillingness to engage in conversation whatsoever. And this has manifested itself in a conversation or in conversations as an impulse to silence whites. And as soon as your ethical model allows you to hold a certain race responsible for the ills of society and then you treat that race differently, right? And even culturally or informally, well, now they don't have as many rights in a conversation. They can't speak as much. They couldn't possibly ever understand because of their ethical and epistemological and psychiatric handicap. As long as you start saying that, that our race deserves to be silenced or re-educated, you have gone too far. Too far. Your ideas have become evil. Your ideas no longer hold a legitimate seat at the table of ideas. And an inability to recognize this as abusive and inappropriate can no longer see that its ideology is spiteful and destructive for a society to adopt, not even to mention less than Christian. Okay? The white fragility concept is deeply morally objectionable. And this concept is becoming a tool for great evil because it is racist about the white intellect. It is harmfully unscientific in its psychiatric overgeneralizations about white Americans and overreaching applications for white individuals and its licensing of people who have racial conversations to diagnose white people with white fragility. Absolutely unscientific and ridiculous and, uh, and absurd. Preposterous. And for these three reasons, the concept of white fragility as it has become popularly operationalized by leftists in modern political discourse is evil. And the concept of white fragility conflicts with basic Christian principles of charity and human dignity. So why the be the bridge so-called educators can't see that white fragility is at its very core or at its very core must presuppose that white people have a psychological handicap in Christian fears, we hear the term spiritual blindness and that white people have a moral inferiority. In Christian fears, we hear the lack of racial righteousness being talked about. Why they can't see this is completely beyond me. By claiming whites have this fragility literally results in a bias against people of European descent. A bias is a cause to feel or show inclination or prejudice for or against someone or something. To tell every white person that this is a foundational principle they need to overcome is to prejudge them entirely on their skin color. Any Christian imbibing this idea already has divided themselves from their white brother or sister. And this is the other reason teachings like this entering the church cause division because it grants one group a type of moral superiority based on some supposed racial righteousness and um and lived experience that another group is incapable incapable of achieving without learning from this superior group and then calling them 
to perform acts of repentance to said superior group. I hate to say it, but for white bridge builders, it seems that Christ is no longer their master teacher. White bridge builders who go into the Breathe the Bridge ministry and want to divest themselves of whiteness actually put people of color as their master teacher in a type of righteousness. Doesn't that just not sit well? <laughs> in fact, that's what we're going to look at in the next episode, how Be the Bridge's goal is to fundamentally change the church. Ladies, this episode may have at times frustrated you or angered you in some way. It's certainly understandable. It did that for me. I had to pray and calm down quite a bit as I was studying white fragility and listening to Robin D'Angelo um, to just ask the Lord to guide me through this. Um, I had many, many times thought of how this idea of white fragility alone would cause such division in a local church that it just, it was breaking my heart. <laughs> so how do we fight this teaching? Well, let's go to scripture. First, I believe we always need to be self-aware of our own tendency, even as Christians, to want to scoop to this level and become biased against people who teach this. Um, I lump myself in here. If we remember that it's only by God's grace that we have faith and it is by no power of ours that we are sanctified, but by the power of the Holy Spirit working through us that made us a new man, then our desire and prayer should be for our own battle against the flesh first. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We are called to live by the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit, and to not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Galatians 5, 19-26. And then for love's sake, we not only pray for our own growth in discernment and maturity, but the salvation, discernment, and maturity of all those who have fallen prey to false teachings like these. For our battle is not against flesh and blood, right? But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So first and foremost, I think we let scripture assess our own hearts and call us to repent of a lack of truth and a lack of love where we may identify it. In this, we truly become humble, but it's a humility that subjects itself to the word of God. But then we are not left to ourselves, right? We are also instructed to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Ephesians 4, 1-3. True unity within the, within the church does not come by getting all races on the same page of our historical past or to root out white supremacy or white fragility together or to call one group to fight their white fragility so that other groups may express their truth. But it comes through the teachings of the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers of God's word. It is these who 
God has gifted to equip the saints for the work of ministry and building up the body of Christ in unity. The word of God, as given to us by the apostles and prophets and preached and exposited by faithful evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, are how we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of God. Uh, doctrine by human cunning by craftiness and deceitful schemes rather speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in every way unto him who is the head unto christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love ephesians four thirteen to 16 with first our addressing of our own hearts and then coming to scripture as not just our authority for faith, but as the tool God has given us to equip us for not only good works, but for the fight against the principalities, philosophies, and ideologies of this world. We who are spiritual are to restore any brother or sister caught in a transgression. Galatians 6, 1-2. Call out the transgressions. These teachings produce in people. Addressing the works of the flesh that is often the fruit of false teachings. Remember what Paul says? These are, in Galatians 5, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So let's think about a couple. I mean, think about sensuality. Sensuality is a broad term referred to a kind of shameless, open lifestyle that flaunts indulgence in doing anything that feels good in spite of con consequences or morals. The original Greek term, and I'm again going to butcher, asalgia, carries a sense of being out of control. It suggests a person lacking discipline or any capacity for self-restraint. And we see sensuality at play when be the bridge, or at least be the bridge gives them license to have sensuality, to people of color to act out however they feel, to even allow bad behavior because of perceived oppression. Other sins that we see in this list include idolatry, enmity or hatred, and we see that obviously with racism that is explicit in white fragility, strife, this causing of strife within the church, jealousy for wanting privileges, and advantages and resources that other people might have. Fits of anger, again, the sensuality, the license to have these fits of anger and be justified in them without correction. Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. In all of this, these sins that we see, we see them clearly displayed within the social justice community, and in love, we are to call them to repent and trust in the gospel. Because just like Virgil Walker and Daryl Harrison state, so clearly the gospel is the solution. Jesus would instruct that his kingdom would not be a kingdom that he would establish through, through change from the outside, but rather that the kingdom would be a part of the heart transformation necessitating the complete change from the inside out. What we're witnessing are, are men who desire to see this transformation, this utopia, if you will, take place from the outside 
in. They're trying to use their, their own powers of persuasion, their own ideological framework, their own economic empowerment, their own political strategy in an effort to, to change society into what they believe it needs to be. Well, the gospel of the kingdom works absolutely the reverse way. What happened in the first century after, after Jesus ascends, right? Those men whose hearts were transformed began to have a massive impact on the culture. But they did so not by trying to change the government structure. They did so because of the heart transformation that was in on the inside of them. And they began to proclaim that gospel message person to person, house to house. And the society and the culture transformed as a result. So that by the time we, we, we read about Paul and, and, and at the church in, in Ephesus and, and Acts 17 and 18, and you unpack what Paul is doing, there's a riot that breaks out. Why? Because, because the, the silversmith there is, is upset because everybody in the world seems to be turning over their, their hearts and giving them to Christ. And it's having a large economic impact on Ephesus. He's saying, we're going we're gonna to get out of, if, if all of these f- folks become believers, we're going to be out of business soon. Nobody's going to want to worship the goddess Artemis. What's going to happen to us? Well, he didn't do that based upon them marching on, on, on Rome. No one did that as a result of them deciding they were going to change the political structure during that time. They did so person to person, heart to heart, as a result of gospel proclamation. So, ladies... Knowing that the gospel is the word of the Lord that we use to fight against the principalities, and it is the word we use that sanctifies us, let us be ever vigilant to remain in it and to remain in scripture. And that's why, ladies, I pray you are in his word. Ladies, if you are interested in the transcript for this episode, you can go to ttew.org. You can find other great resources, articles, blogs, and videos that may bless you in your Christian walk, as well as links to follow me on social media. If you wish to contact me, you can email me at thoroughlyequipped316 at gmail.com. Again, the website address is ttew.org. Thoroughly Equipped is part of Striving for Eternity's Christian podcast community. Striving for Eternity is a Christ-centered ministry focused on equipping people for eternity by assisting Christians to have an eternal perspective on life. They strive to bring evangelism, discipleship, apologetics, and Christian living together for the purpose of eternal preparation by exalting God, edifying and equipping the saints, and evangelizing the lost. They provide speakers, online articles, online courses, books, podcasts, and other theological resources, all centered on God's Word. To find out more, go to strivingforeternity.org. And to listen to other podcasts, go to podcast.strivingforeternity.org. I pray that their resources bless you as they have blessed me, as we live our lives day by day, praising and glorifying God.